Hello, and welcome to the Palladium podcast. My name is Matt Ellison. I am an associate editor here at Palladium, filling in for Wolf and for Ash this week. Today, we're joined by Luca Jukic. Luca is a writer and the author of our recent piece, The Two Visions at War for Ukraine's Future. Welcome to the Palladium podcast, Luca. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. So in your piece, you look at the past and present and future of Ukraine, um, partly through this lens of uh, a trip and and sort of um, an extended time that you spent living in the country. I wonder if you could start off by giving us a summary of the piece. Basically, the piece comes out of two months that I spent in Ukraine last year, where I basically had this um, semi-spontaneous will to just visit and get to know Ukraine after spending two summers in Kazakhstan, getting to know this very um, interesting and new place. I started learning Russian when I was when I came to university. And so like after a few years, obviously, as that got better, I got this kind of newfound love for visiting these strange post-Soviet places. Basically, um, I was in Croatia and I took this long trip, kind of roundabout trip as I had to do to get to Odessa. And so I spent some time in Lviv, which is in Western Ukraine, the kind of um, traditional bastion of Ukrainian nationalism. And then I ended up uh, in Odessa, spend, uh, well, living there for about a month um, with a local family, uh, more well, Russian-speaking city with this interesting uh, long history as an important city in the Russian Empire and then in the Soviet Union. So, um, yeah, it basically kind of uh, weaves together a lot of my observations, um, specifically about language and how language relates to identity there and how it can help us understand uh, a lot of the conflicts that we hear about. I mean, related to obviously the war is the kind of extreme example, but of course there are a lot more interesting conflicts that are present in Ukrainian society. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot about how language kind of informs that and how it, um, um, how the identities that it informs also impact um, views of history, views of the present, and of course, the future as well. Yeah, there's a lot of these maybe oversimplified narratives about Ukraine and indeed about a lot of Eastern European countries and I'm wondering how did your uh, experience on the ground differ from perhaps what you were expecting before you set out? Right. Yeah. So this is I, I think this is a this is a really interesting um, question to ask because I think I kind of uh, I tried to deal with this in a, in the intro to my piece basically because I think it is a bit of a shock to go to Ukraine um, for people from Western countries, but especially for me having. Um, having kind of grown up in Eastern Europe, but the Eastern Europe that's mostly part of the EU, and so is quite like, well, not quite developed, but very developed actually nowadays. It's it's really, you know, it's like a world apart from 30 years ago, where, you know, you had countries emerging from communism, um, quite poor and backwards and, um, you know, just basically starting from zero. Um, especially going through a very tough decade in the 90s. Um, but then emerging from it, joining the EU, um, you know, basically financed with Western money, rebuilding, and now becoming increasingly just, you know, increasingly developed, increasingly advanced. Um, and so basically going from that and then going to Ukraine is a huge shock because Ukraine has really had none of that success. Um, and it's, you know, partially because of, well, so I guess maybe I'll get to the um, kind of what led up to that, but then there was basically the big shock in Ukraine of 2014, where, you know, they have this kind of um, pro-European revolution, which doesn't really lead to any material gain and basically results in Russia annexing Crimea and then uh, sponsoring and it, well, sponsoring separatists in the East while also invading um, covertly. And uh, this basically destroys their economy. So like the Ukrainian currency crashes and, um, you know, so people's savings are basically become not worthless, but uh, much less valuable against Western currencies. Um, you know, investment kind of dries up. Right. And as you point out, to have these economic disparities, which already existed even before the Civil War, such as 
how much poor uh, Ukraine was compared to, say, Germany and Poland, now to have this compounded by civil war uh, makes even more of a divide between these uh, former Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, um, you know, the war is a really huge um, factor in the country's economic development, as it is in any country, you know. Um, like, I, I mean, for example, Croatia, which, you know, uh, had to fight for independence from 1991 to 1995, basically had decades of economic development wiped out. And then it took until I think 2013, 14 to recover. And by that point, countries like Slovenia and Poland and Czech Republic are, you know, far ahead. So Ukraine already set back is being set back even more by this. And so it's, I mean, really, it is kind of the main, the single biggest issue in Ukraine. Um, with kind of still no end in sight. Um, but in any case, to get back to the original question uh, about the, the kind of shock of um, going there, um, one very interesting thing that struck me was when on my way there, I passed through Slovakia and I have a friend there and um, I got to meet some of his other Slovak friends. And it was kind of funny because he joined me on my way to Lviv and his friends were kind of confused. They're like, why are you going to Ukraine? Because for most people there, it's just kind of like this poor country to the east. You know, it's kind of like, you know, like to British people, Slovakia is a poor country to the east. But, you know, to Slovaks, it's like Ukraine, this big kind of mysterious country to the east that there's not much to see or do there. It's like, why would you go? Obviously, you know, probably not everybody thinks that. But yeah, I mean, it's funny because, I mean, the British thing or the American thing, you know, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Euro Trip, right? Yeah, yeah of course. The scene they of do go like, to Slovakia, like, yeah. Yeah, they go to Bratislava and it's something out of, you know, uh, <laughs> like the 1970s of like what a Eastern Bloc country looks like. And there's just like trash blowing around or whatever. But that's not the Bratislava of, of 2020 or 2019 is, you know, this very much growing uh, metropolis, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, but if you go just, a, you know, a few, you know, tens of, uh, hundreds of kilometers east you know you're not in the eu anymore i think you say uh, this is where the real eastern europe begins yeah yeah that's kind of uh winking and nod to all those all the people in slovakia and croatia and other countries who insist they're central european and not eastern european because you know there is some truth to that where now there is definitely a strong divide between you know um, the EU, Eastern Europe, which is traditionally Central Europe, and now the real Eastern Europe, which is like Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. But yeah, so that that is a kind of funny um, cultural divide. And I think there, you know, that was part of why I found it kind of interesting to go, because I think, like I say in, in the piece, there isn't really any direct way to go to um, Odessa from Zagreb. Like it's I mean, it's not even slightly connected, you know, the connections are ridiculous, it's like going through four different countries for as in, you know, changing, you know, having like a change every, every few hours to get there. Right. So it's really just not something people really do. And then once you get there, it, it is, it does feel kind of like a different world. Um, I definitely got more notes of Kazakhstan than of other places in Europe in play, you know, in uh, Odessa and uh, in Lviv, um, which is basically, I mean, that's kind of, you know, leftovers from the Soviet Union, where, of course, things were kind of standardized. But I think that's what I mean, this is the face of, you know, when there's not really public investment or development, you know, then a train station will just say this stay the same for 30 years. Uh, mm -hmm. Or, you know, certain roads won't really be fixed in a while. And then it does end up kind of just doesn't really resemble this kind of modern european place yeah i think for me that that experience was crystallized oh, i one time uh flew from uh vienna to uh chisinau or, or kishinev uh, oh. moldova and the the sort of you know so close to europe but yet so far that you describe in this piece really hit home for me this just i mean you look at the airports or the train stations or whatever it is the, the public buildings and you feel like, I mean, I felt like I had gone back in time 30 or 40 years, at least, if not more, in just traveling a few hundred miles. Yeah, it's true. And that reminds me of a funny joke one of my Polish friends once told me, which was, 
uh, she was raving about Laviv. She's like, you have to go. It's so cool. It's like seeing Poland 30 years ago, <laughs> which I guess the Polish people is a draw. Yeah. <laughs> See it as it once or, was. Yeah, I mean, it's similar, you know, the Americans or the people going back to or going to Cuba, uh, similar kind of this kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, is it seeing seeing like the preserved past maybe it's profane in that sense or or vulgar to t- to kind of look at it that way but it, it certainly is this interesting cultural lesson yeah definitely but um i think yeah there there is that kind of negative element of it but i i also think that people there in ukraine well i don't know about cuba but for in ukraine for example people are very aware that they're that the state is completely failing to say repair roads or mm-hmm. anything, any kind of like public. So basically any, well, okay. So this is kind of, uh, I guess I'll go into this point. I noticed that everywhere in Ukraine, basically where it was private, where private investment was involved, say cafes, bars, clubs, very mm-hmm. nice. And every place where public money is needed, it's basically a complete mess. Like you'll have a pothole the size of two semi trucks in right. on like one of the central streets and it's clearly not been touched in like you know months meanwhile it'll be right next to some super fancy bar that the kind of nouveau riche are going to every day and having a great time mm-hmm. that's a bit of a segue to something else but well cuba yeah cuba is like that too probably not as extreme because there isn't as much influx of uh of foreign investment um and pri- there isn't as much privatization but where there is private money it's like very nice and works the way you'd expect and then where where everything's run by sort of a a variously corrupt or captured you know state uh that's very ineffective at um at sort of actually serving the sort of public infrastructure needs or whatever it is uh it sort of it, it seeks it, the the water seeks its own level and it's just sort of lowest common denominator type type services i think yeah yeah and i think there's I didn't really talk about this much in the piece just because I think um, I wasn't really focusing on economic issues, but I think this mm-hmm. kind of, it's really emblematic of basically the, probably the biggest uh, problem independent of the war in Ukraine's economy, which is kind of inequality and corruption, which I think really do stem or come out of that transition to capitalism where mm-hmm. you basically had, you know, you had rapid privatization and it kind of gave this you know it gave a way for the old elites to basically become the new elites by just taking whatever the state had and putting it in their own hands right for often for no price for low prices or nothing but yeah sorry yeah no uh it's fascinating and you you mentioned in the piece this comparison between poland and ukraine that we've sort of been touching on a bit but maybe if you could make that that sort of historical example more more clear i'm wondering you know, what was it, for instance, in the Polish case or maybe um, the Czechoslovak case that happened that led in a different direction than than what happened in perhaps Ukraine, um, perhaps also Moldova and um, so, some of the other countries that, that really have not seen that prosperity? I'm not I'm not really an expert on the 90s and this transition to capitalism, but basically from from what I understand, I think the, the major difference between Poland and Ukraine, and also for, you know, comparing to a lot of post-Soviet states, not necessarily Eastern Bloc, is that um, basically after, or, you know, during the the revolutions and, or, you know, the kind of around 1990, you know, the the kind of anti-communist revolutions in Eastern Europe, places like the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, were basically, they were taken over by an actual opposition. There was this kind of anti-communist establishment um, civil society, which actually took over and was able to basically change the country or change the system, uh, the political system of the country into a more Western-inspired capitalist system. Whereas in places like, for example, uh, well, yeah, in Ukraine as well, but Russia is maybe a more famous example, you know, Yeltsin was basically in the communist party and rose to prominence as part of it and as a kind of part of the establishment and then broke russia away from the soviet union as somebody in a position of power it wasn't like it wasn't necessarily like he was a lifelong 
in lifelong opposition to the Communist Party and then took over and necessarily, how could I put it? Well, it's, you know, it's, he, he wasn't exactly this dissident archetype, maybe is what I'm trying to get at. Um, whereas, you know, in, in, for example, the Czech Republic, you know, Václav Havel, the famous dissident playwright became the president in Poland, of course, Lech Walesa, the, um, uh, the founder of a trade, illegal trade union. It's like completely different elites took over basically. So the more, so sort of, if we maybe abstracted a bit, there's a pattern of the places where the new elites were not as steeped in maybe the old the old corruption of the communist apparatus the less likely they were to just sort of see privatization and and sort of post-communism as just an opportunity for like plundering the state resources in in order to you know secure private wealth or something like that yeah yeah exactly i I think yeah that's exactly it it's because in in basically in a lot of post-soviet countries you'll have the same you know for example another yeah another example kazakhstan you have the same guy Nazarbayev, Mm -hmm. president of the communist, uh, you know, the communist republic, you know, Soviet, Soviet sorry, Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. And then suddenly he's the president of Kazakhstan (laughs) and it's like, okay, change your clothes quickly to nationalist (laughs) clothes. And then, but you know, your mode of operate, I mean, like you can't be 45 years old, spend your entire career in some system, Mm -hmm. then suddenly pretend to be something else. But you know, your mode of operating doesn't really change. Um, right. As far as I've seen, um... I I think this is sort of a, a very interesting point. Um, even as we think about kind of why it is, from my perspective, that you know a lot of the elites in the U.S. and in Russia, for instance, are still sort of locked in this basically Cold War mindset. And it's like, well, if you live in a system and you sort of like get brought up in a system and even get get status and get get offices and high positions in a system that like operates on a certain logic of mutual antagonism you don't just suddenly like lose that because the political situation changes or the you know governance situation changes or it's a new regime or whatever uh, those old habits die hard i think right exactly and you know that of course goes both ways when it comes to the u.s and right. russia because oh, yeah. you have all these you have all these russian generals you yeah. have the cold warriors on the american side of course yeah no oh yeah okay I, I thought that's what you're referring to in the first book but in any case yeah i mean it's in, on both sides you know you have an oh, entire right. no, and the, yeah and on the russian side you have like the kgb you know obviously like, you know uh, putin and his people that that are just as yeah basically you just have a giant security apparatus that yeah like you said operates on some sort of logic um and then i think um, so basically what we were talking about before is that kind of party apparatus or that, um, party, uh, way of thinking where it's like, um, if I don't steal from the state, I'm stealing from my family kind of thing. Like, you know, I'm in this position of power in this party and, um, I'm going to use it to enrich myself and my family. Cause you know, I don't really care about the system anyway. I don't care about the party anyway. And then, you know, when you carry that over into a capitalist system, you just get a lot of people getting very rich. One Uh, of the other aspects of the piece that I found really interesting is kind of how history is alive and well, uh, both for different ethnic purposes, as well as just this kind of rich um, cultural historical appreciation, especially in the cities that you document in detail of Lviv and uh, Odessa. Can you talk about sort of how history operates and how it's alive in the country? Yeah, yeah. So actually, th- this is a fantastic topic. And I think, you know, this this is a, you know, a big portion of the piece was kind of trying to get at how history provides a certain, you know, provides a certain legitimacy and justification for, for kind of, you know, for a lot of political um, goals and political arguments in Eastern Europe. And so basically, yeah, I was trying to explain how there are these, basically these two fundamentally different views of, um, of well, obviously specifically Ukrainian history in these kind of two halves of Ukraine that kind of inform how they see Ukrainian identity, how they see Ukraine's relationship to its neighbors, how they see their generation's relationship to their past generations. And I think these are really, to me personally, I think this is one of the biggest, one of the most important things to understand 
if you want to understand uh, the country and the conflicts in the country, because I think if you have these completely different views of history, it, I think those are kind of some of the hardest things to reconcile, because you basically have, yeah, so in Ukraine, you know, in the West, you have this kind of revalorization of this Ukrainian, basically Nazi collaborating uh, fascist movement from World War II that was mm -hmm. fighting for a free Ukraine, but obviously <laughs> committed a bunch, well, I, I don't know if it's, uh, I, I'm not really well-versed on the scholarship. I don't know if they technically committed genocide or not, but, you know, basically massacred Poles and Jews and any non-Ukrainian. Right, and certainly, I think the the scholarship uh, talks a lot about collaboration, basically, you know, and sort of, it's not always clear how much was sort of done done out of their own will or or because at the behest of the sort of the Nazis and the SS and everything, but uh, there clearly were right, atrocities right. that were yeah. committed by by people in Ukraine against you know other people in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of I mean this is why I think it's it's a bit difficult to get at the kind of you know there's a lot of questions around guilt and collective right. guilt um, around these kinds of things in. I mean, in Europe generally, but I think particularly in Eastern mm -hmm. Europe, because you ha you know it was kind of the bloodiest and most chaotic mm -hmm. part of Europe during World War II. But um, especially so, yeah, this is the kind of um, this is what I was trying also not to. Uh, I'm reluctant to, well, because so yeah, basically you have this. You it's know, a very sensitive issue. Yeah, extremely, and I think it's so. Basically, what I find very, what I think you have to be very careful of is that basically the. The uh, sorry, the Russian propaganda line on Ukraine really likes to emphasize this as basically proof of Ukraine being basically a fundamentally fascist Nazi state, which is of course just not true. Like they just, you know, I think it's the only country in the world other than Israel that had like a Jewish president and Jewish prime minister. I think this was just okay. last year at the same time, and it's like that, uh, you know, and this is the most you know, most popular president they've ever had and stuff like this. It's like, that's clearly not what it's about. It, they don't necessarily, you know, they don't want to honor this army. I mean, some people definitely want to honor it because they are fascists. That's a whole nother story right. in Ukraine. <laughs> yes. Because um, they they do kind of have a problem with neo-Nazis. There are fascists, there are Nazis in Ukraine, uh, certainly. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. But I think it's, it's I would be very reluctant to label, you know, all Ukrainians Nazis or every Ukrainian that basically sports the flag, the the black and red flag, as a Nazi, because there's this whole other element in all of Eastern Europe of 50 years of com well, close to 50 years. Well, actually, in Ukraine, more than 50 years, but in any case, you know, half a century of communist rule, where basically people were spoon-fed mm -hmm. narratives that also weren't true, where you know the Soviets were kind of perfect liberators and didn't commit any crimes and everything was great. And then there's not really been a chance for these societies to really process any of this. So now you have, you know, you basically do have revisionism, but you kind of, there, you know, there kind of has to be revisionism when the only, uh, the only histories were these kind of Marxist histories that are kind of written before they're even written, because you know history is all some grand march and it's um, it's kind of just about proving biases. Right, and it's like um, if you think about whether history is sort of this i guess maybe you could have an idealized history that would be um concerned with the objective truth of the past and trying to present you know the most um accurate you know way to organize th that information and those narratives or you could have history that's predominantly employed for this kind of instrumental political purpose in which case kind of all bets are off and it's gonna, you know, it seems like, you know, it's like the strategic reserve of historical information, right? And both sides, or in this case, you know, all, all sides, because there's all sorts of different factions within both Eastern and Western Ukraine that can kind of view the debate over history or the debate over particular ways of telling their story as as kind of huge implications for the legitimacy of their current politics. Which also, I think, makes it, it's very easy to characterize this country as 
you know, run by fascists and Nazis when you actually do have basically this Azov battalion, which is a neo-Nazi. Basically, I mean, it's, I guess, they, so they were originally a unit in the army fighting in uh, the Donbass, and now they they have various levels of political legitimacy. They're official, like, I think it was a volunteer force originally, and now it's part of the armed forces of Ukraine. And you have, like, quite a lot of far-right politicians in Ukraine, but in, again, in national elections, they don't have any success. They'll get, like, 1-2%. So to what extent that is really definitive to Ukrainian politics, you know, I'm, I'm not really convinced that um, it necessarily is but then on you know if you watch russian news it'll be like you know ukrainians ukrainian neo-nazis teaching their kids to kill russians and stuff like that yeah one of the which is true i I have actually seen that on russian tv so you know it's it's just a bit like you know they're not doing themselves any favors by by giving legitimacy to those kind of um radicals right and and then the the history itself is 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 complicated on so many levels you went into this when you're describing both the propaganda from the soviets and also the way that the soviets sort of turned around the atrocities and and blamed all of them on on the nazis and then that was also good for the local people in ukraine to sort of avoid any guilt at least during the during the soviet period and then still in the post-soviet period We've now not really ever resolved that, especially now with the the kind of, you know, the post-2014 conflict, which has just sort of amplified all of that and probably made that type of reconciliation even harder. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's, it is kind of, you know, fundamentally refighting World War II in 20, you know, in the 21st century is, of course, going to be the most uh the kind of most incendiary thing you could possibly do but that is basically what's happening in i guess not just in eastern europe now it's increasingly happening in even western countries but you know arguing over the legacies of historical figures and their various um qualities and well their positive and negative qualities i guess you could say but yeah so then in ukraine you have this other aspect which is so what you know the whole this whole issue of Ukrainian nationalism and, you know, celebrating Nazi collaborators and fascists mm-hmm. and all that, that's basically the, you know, that's kind of going on in the West. And I guess, um, you know, well, I mean, you know, when I say West, I mean the more nationalist areas, which, you know, is predominantly um, the West of the country. But um, then you have this other side of the country, which um, you could say like this other face of Ukraine, which I think Edessa is very emblematic of because um, as I as I wrote in the piece, and as I was told by almost every person I met in Odessa, it's you know this very special place founded by Catherine the Great, um, really just quite an interesting frontier city that purpose built, basically served as this kind of elite retreat on the Black Sea uh, for centuries for all of you know all the Russian Empire's elites, which of course were mostly Russian speaking, but then obviously has a very a very um, very diverse heritage because it had an enormous Jewish population, um, obviously Ukrainians, Poles, Greeks, basically every kind of Eastern European person under the sun uh, had a community in Odessa. So um, very interesting place. But um, in any case, yeah. So then uh, the the kind of the city's modern identity is very much tied to Russian culture, and I mean that in the kind of wider linguistic sense because you'll what people will tell you a lot is that. They are Ukrainian, and this is also, again, this is kind of the, I think one of the most fundamental points of the Russian speakers in Ukraine, only a small part are actually Russian or would identify as Russian. Most of them are, you know, Ukrainian, and they see themselves as Ukrainian, but their idea of Ukraine is, of course, very different from these, you know, more exclusive nationalists, which I think kind of take this more Central European notion of nation state to, you know, kind of in many cases, the worst extreme, where they want Russian completely purged from the country and everything. Whereas in reality, for most people, it's just, you know, that's the language they speak, that's the language they prefer, it's their heritage and all that. And it's kind of, it's a bit of an offensive proposition to tell them, don't speak what you speak. And that is basically what's happening now. There's, you know, official Ukrainianization where, um, like, for example, the family I lived with, they're a Russian-speaking family, as almost everybody in Odessa is. But the kids will go to Ukrainian school, so they'll go to class, speak to the, you know the teachers will speak to them in Ukrainian, and they'll speak to each other in Russian, and it's like this kind of bizarre 
you know, this bizarre disconnect where, you know, even like restaurant menus have to all be in Ukrainian. It's like mm. everything Ukrainian. Technically, I think even waiters are not allowed to speak Russian to the customers, which of right. course doesn't happen. But it's just this like aggressive um, effort to create this um, ethnically pure, or I guess you could say linguistically pure nation state that, you know, to some extent did happen everywhere in Europe already. But now they're trying to do it in 2020. And it's like, the political and social and cultural environment is very different. Yeah, and it strikes me that it's always one of these things that's very hard uh, to do through law, right? Uh, through law, especially at the centralized level, what is not the case in fact and on the ground. It's always kind of like, it's like people are probably going to speak whatever they're going to speak and just because you pass a law mandating something, um, you know, you can do things in schools, obviously, you can do things with taxes and public records and things of that nature and signs. But I do wonder kind of, is that just not a kind of relatively reactionary response to the fact that the country is becoming divided in large part because of like Russian activities and influence yeah no i i mean that is definitely a response to i mean the, you know there's a lot of moves that were taken after 2014 because obviously russia basically again in a very counterproductive blow to its um sort of ideologically russian allies in the country basically um invaded and annexed crimea which makes affinity to russia look in many cases can be you know, consider treasonous in some right. way or whatnot. So yeah, maybe so. talk to speak to that. What? How did the? How was the Russian activity counterproductive even for Russian affinity? R Russian sort of yeah, the the people in in the east of Ukraine who are sort of for whatever reason more culturally close to Russia. Well, so I think from I guess from the Russian state perspective. Um, so I guess if you were looking at the events of the last 20 years from the Kremlin, basically in the, before the Orange Revolution, which was in 2004, I believe, and then again, before the Maidan mm -hmm. Revolution, you basically had a pro-Russian, a pro-Russian president in charge, who is basically fundamentally, you could say, the same kind of, kind of a product of the same system as the Russian government. So this was kind of, you could say it's the perfect situation for Russia where they basically have, it's not really, I wouldn't say it's so much about having somebody pro-Russian in charge. I don't think that was the fundamental thing there. I think it's more, they had a guy who was, um, who could operate, who operated in the same way as them, who kind of um, understood the fundamental logic of how they operated and they kind of could, could understand each other on that level. By that, they basically had Ukraine in their sphere of influence, right? So they could kind of, I guess they felt they could draw Ukraine into their kind of Russian civilization, as Putin recently uh, began saying, which is quite interesting, that Russia is, you know, this kind of separate civilization. And so when you get these kind of pro-European nationalist Ukrainian politicians coming in, I think Russia obviously is worried about, worried about a, whatever, having NATO on its borders and all that, of course, but it is... Also, they may be, I don't know, it's, it's tough for me to say because, you know, obviously I wasn't in the Kremlin in 2014. I don't know exactly the, the logic of what they did. Right, but. right. No, I, I'm wondering, especially, especially from the perspective, from the, from the bottom up rather than uh, necessarily from the, you know, high level, you know, uh, elite politics, sort of from the person in maybe Odessa or the Donbass or some part of eastern Ukraine where like how do they feel about the this kind of stuff in my experience in odessa it was like um people were not actually you know even though it was a very russian-speaking city people weren't really pro-russian um in the sense of pro you know it's not like they supported what was going on in the donbass not at all but they would take this kind of you know, they didn't want to really blame anybody kind of a line. So they'd be kind of like, we just right. want peace. You know, everybody's, everybody's at fault. Everybody's terrible. Probably in part because they're being exposed to Russian language sources, which also, again, I find kind of funny that, you know, in Ukraine, they, they want everything to be in Ukrainian, 
which of course has the result of basically then if Russians want to get some sort of news or something, they, they get, get it, it from yeah, Russia. Right. So because it's kind there of... aren't, you know, if so, suppose you had pro Kiev sources or or just sort of relatively neutral sources of news and information in Russian language that's targeting people in Eastern Ukraine who are sort of first and foremost Russian speakers, um, you could probably actually have a better, I guess, you know, propaganda effect if that's your goal, um, rather than sort of pushing them into the arms of like RT Sputnik and the whole panoply of just like hardcore russian propaganda sources right right because um this is one interesting point i wanted to make which i i didn't get to put in the piece but um it's interesting that a lot of people in ukraine have satellites or at least i i noticed this in odessa they have you know satellite mm -hmm. tv because basically with satellite tv they can get channels from well right russia right <laughs> from everywhere but you know specifically from russia so th yeah so uh that's why i think this is the this is the kind of unintended negative consequences of these ukrainian ukrainianization efforts where you'll you're kind of pushing russian speakers slightly away you know kind of excluding them a bit from uh this ukrainian polity because it's like they you know for a lot of people they just don't I guess they they definitely respect Ukrainian and its role that it should have in the public sphere, but um, I don't think, for example, you would treat other, you know, I don't think any in the EU they would treat such a minority in that way, for example, you know, um, like denying them education in their language uh, or something like that. Although, uh, to be fair, I think they do have Russian classes as a second language, but I do think it's, they do take a particularly hard line with the Russian minority because of obviously the geopolitical implications right but um uh anyway uh, just uh quickly uh i think i kind of keep glossing over the 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 view of the war and everything um i think i i did notice i met i don't exaggerate i met two people who were actually convinced that there were no russian soldiers in the donbass right. so you know clearly russian propaganda has some uh reach and i have to say these are not like uh, this is interesting as, as well, because like these are not really, you know, you're like politically right. informed, I don't know, person in, you know, university student in Kiev, they're just kind of like, you know, average random people I met. And they, you know, just think this, I don't know why they think it, I don't know where they're getting it from. But clearly, those kind of ideas are, um, you know, present amongst the population. So and and maybe, uh, and, and so what would their view be of, of Crimea as well? Would, would it be similar sort of? Um... Uh, no, I, uh, well, I, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really ask people about Crimea much. But when I did hear about it, usually people were saying like, yes, it's, it is Ukraine. I think technically, it's, I think you're not allowed to. So apparently, you're actually, uh, I spoke, I knew one person who went to uh, Crimea, actually, as a tourist after it was annexed. Apparently, you still can go by bus, and he was telling me that you have to, they ask you at the border if you think <laughs> Crimea is Russia or Ukraine, and so you have to say it's Ukraine, and then they let you through. Oh, on the uh, Ukrainian, this is the Ukrainian border guard side, and then... And then when you enter, they say <laughs> you have to say the opposite or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 but it's it's kind of interesting. There is this weird gray zone status where so people still do travel back and forth. And I think it's the same in the Donbass. I think people can travel through the front lines and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, Crimea, I didn't really hear as much about. But again, also the war itself, I think that is kind of... Odessa is basically on the other side of the country. And, you know, it is a massive country. Um, and maybe also because maybe it's intentional that the pro-Russian or, you know, the more Russian leaning population doesn't really want to talk about it as much. And when they do, it's everybody's guilty and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they, I, I really think that at least with the people I was with, economic concerns were really number one. They mm -hmm. were, you know, people don't have high wages, you know, as in the vast majority of people, they really don't have high wages you know, they might not even be, they might not even be getting paid in the local currency, depending on the work, uh, because there's a lot of, um, a lot of people in Odessa, you know, go work um, as kind of sailors, merchant marine and whatnot, and get paid in dollars and then don't pay taxes mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there's kind of deep economic worries that people have that I think supersede all this kind of stuff, sure. as it usually is, you know, especially outside of capital cities. Right. 
But um, I, I knew quite a few refugees as well from uh, the Donbass in Odessa. I think a lot of them go there because, you know, it's very nice and it's Russian speaking. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, maybe this goes back to where we started on kind of the kind of caught between East and West or these different competing visions, these different the, the sense of what it means to be part of Europe or not part of Europe or sort of caught between west western civilization and and russian civilization if if uh that's what we're calling it again like i wonder do you have a sense of is it possible to like to exist and prosper between these these kind of two mutually opposed clash of of cultures or or kind of what what do you think about uh, about just sort of it almost seems like there's kind of these almost mutually irreconcilable visions and that in order to have this kind of some sort of uni- if not united but uh practically speaking successful ukrainian state it would have to reconcile th- these different visions yeah i mean it's obviously it's incredibly difficult you know i i'm not ukrainian and i'm not really you know involved in uh in the politics of the country so uh, and I don't envy those who are, but yeah, I mean, of course, I think theoretically, you know, you can kind of succeed in any way. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely sympathetic to this, this idea that Ukraine needs to be a bit more creative. I think these two, I think the two kind of exclusionary visions where you have, um, these, um, Ukrainians wanted to be just kind of more traditional central European nation state like Poland or Hungary or, um, Slovakia, I don't know, um, kind of homogenous, Ukrainian speaking, and, you know, kind of in opposition to Russia, uh, you know, the road there is really not clearly, obviously, you know, Russia has invaded. So it was, you know, it's not an easy road to take. Um, and they've been kind of suffering the consequences. While on the other hand, Russia is not really something that's necessarily worth emulation. You know, I mean, Russia has so many of its own problems and those kind of exist in Ukraine too, just with corruption and kleptocracy and all that. It's just, and, you know, oligarchy that don't really make it that attractive of a model, especially when you don't have any natural resources. Um, So I think it's like this kind of, this affinity can be really easily exploited by, and I think it was being exploited by uh, basically Yanukovych and the pro, you know, the Russia-oriented politicians kind of um, take this um, affinity that people have towards Russia and then just use it to not really do anything with it. So I think what Ukraine really needs is some sort of vision, yeah. and I guess that's what um, the current president is kind of trying to be—that unifier. But he's not really well liked by the uh, more nationalist-leaning Ukrainians because he's a Russian speaker and. Um, yeah, frankly, like many Russian speakers, has kind of mocked Ukrainian a lot and publicly. I mean, he was a comedian, so it's kind of and his whole you know his whole career was in Russian, Russian language, and I think some of his movies have even been banned <sighs> hilariously. Even as he's been president, they've been banned because they're uh, too Russian, like they're all in Russian. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of a weird situation. But because there's a sort of tent, he's not. Uh... He's a president, but he's, you know, not... um... Yeah, yeah. Right before he, right before he came to power, I think the decommunization laws, or actually, I guess they were, no, they were signed quite before. I think, uh, I forget, I think it was a law about the, uh, there was like a language law uh, put into place by Poroshenko, the previous president, right before uh, Zelensky came in. But, um, but I I think, so one of the, so this kind of idea of Ukraine in between two worlds, um, I think is not, you know, it makes a lot of sense in the sense that these two groups both want to kind of, they both have their own affinities and everything. And I think Europe is, has not really been that uh, well, fundamentally, this is another thing, you know, the problem is that even if Ukraine wants to join the EU and everything, they're not necessarily ready. They have all these structural problems and the EU doesn't necessarily want them, um, which is kind of, in, you know, to me personally, a bit kind of sad, just knowing how, you know, how successful all these other Eastern European states have been, but that's just the reality, you know, you can't, Europe can't really fix Ukraine's problems for it. Ukraine has Mm -hmm. to kind of, to some extent, go at it on its own. And of course, it's even harder now with the war and everything. But so yeah, but I was going to say that there's a very interesting, I think, proposal that uh, the historian, uh, Timothy Snyder, who's uh, written a lot about Mm -hmm. Eastern Europe, and he's, I think, speaks most Eastern European languages, uh, very impressive. He 
has this proposal that I think to me sounds very uh, reasonable and I think would be kind of interesting uh, where he basically says that Ukraine should standardize um, and regulate its own version of the Russian language because mm. he's like there's no country in the world that has this large of a linguistic group that doesn't actually regulate the language um, and I think this is kind of it also turns a lot of Russia's uh, narratives on their own heads because uh, you know Russian actually does you know the name Rus originates right, from Kiev. Kiev it's like Rus. the, the yeah. original nation was Kiev and Rus, yeah. Uh, and Russia is really, and this is kind of some, kind of a derogatory thing for Ukrainians to say about Russia that you know they're all just Muscovites and it's like this big Muscovite empire, um, which you know has some you know they can clearly make that historical argument, and I think that actually makes more sense to kind of compete with Russia in this Russian-speaking world because Ukraine is a huge country. It has a lot of cultural and intellectual capital. And so, you know, they could do something with the Russian language. I think that's what, to me, that makes more sense than trying to go down this path of forcing, you know, a lot of your population to um, speak it. Well, you know, I mean, that might happen anyway. You know, Ukrainian will probably um, be more spoken generations from now. But I don't know. I just, you know, that's kind of a, an aside. But. So I see. So if you if you were Zelensky, you're advising him or or based on these, these ideas from Timothy Schneider, you'd be saying, take the first step of basically don't live in the unreality, not living in the unreality of pretending that you're just going to get all of these Russian speaking, Russian ethnically identifying people to just suddenly become full board, you know, Western Ukrainians or whatever, uh, or, or Ukrainian nationalists, you know, uh, recognize them as this uh, potentially ethnic minority and and the rights that they might have to their Russian language inside the country or a different version of Russian that's a particularly Ukrainian version of Russian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, when you look at how many other countries speak Russian, it, of course, offers this, you know, this huge reach of, you know, where Ukraine could be this counterweight in the Russian speaking world to Russia while not necessarily being in conflict with Russia. Um, but, you know, obviously, I mean, there's practical reasons why that can't necessarily happen now. I mean, of course, the, the Ukrainian political climate, um, as you say, you know, there's a lot, there's a strong reaction against Russian things when they've been invaded by Russia. So now obviously it's um, the kind of order of business is more Ukrainian, not more Russian. Um, but, you know, this is kind of one of those things that maybe is kind of a missed opportunity. Um, this maybe could have been done decades ago, but maybe a bit, you know, unfeasible now. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's yeah, it's interesting now with basically the new president, uh, Zelensky. He's you know former comedian, complete kind of out of nowhere candidate who won I think sixty seventy percent right. of the vote in the election, which is just like a ridiculous. I mean, by by actual democratic standards, yes. it's kind of incomprehensible. So he's just this kind of weird media phenomenon that's now a president, and. We'll see if he can actually do something. I think it's actually, it's probably one of the most interesting things to happen, I think, in, I mean, at least Eastern European politics for, I mean, an actual comedian to just kind of become, <laughs> become president with such a wide base of support. But um, obviously, there's so many other entrenched forces uh, when you come to power as a leader like that, that, right. you know, he can't necessarily change everything, nor does he necessarily actually have the ideas to change everything. You know, I think all the suspicions that I've heard from people are completely reasonable. You know, he is, you know, I mean, he's a comedian and who knows? I mean, I guess people think of him as like a kind of puppet for this um, oligarch Kolomoisky, but um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's, it's just like, obviously, you know, you, you can't necessarily entrust your country's entire future to a comedian right but well, who knows maybe you can right. <laughs> maybe we'll see. yeah if the when the world is so absurd as it is uh the people look to uh the court jester or whatever um i thought maybe we could end on a few of the interesting stories that the interesting episodes that you had in the piece um you talked about for instance the odessa market could you tell us maybe more about that and if there are any other stories that come to mind. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, actually, I had a funny encounter. I think I put it in there with the, um, in the book market, um, which, you know, I, I was always walking past it and kind of wondering, well, two 
you know, kind of two aspects of it. One, I, you know, I put in there about how they're selling, you know, Snick, well, not Snickers, but like all these Western products like Oreos and Mountain Dew and uh, I don't know, whatever else. Like it, it, I always found it kind of weird, you know, I'll have these books, booksellers, and then they're selling all this other stuff. And uh, yeah, I found out it was only because basically because economic crisis, uh, some of these uh, smart booksellers realized that they could make more money trafficking Western junk food than yeah. they could selling books. Uh, but, uh, yeah, then I had uh, the funny run in with one of the booksellers when I wanted to get a kind of, I mean, you know, I don't speak Ukrainian, I speak Russian. So I was looking for, and you know, there's no Russian language bookstores, which I found mm -hmm. out there as well. Um, I guess they're, they're presumably right. illegal, but you can buy them from these booksellers. And so, and I think they, they have to bring them from Russia, I guess, just by bus or something. Uh, or by van. And so anyway, I, I asked if there was any good or like uh, Russian language histories of Ukraine. And he kind of with a sneer, he's like, no, nothing good. They're all written by Putin. <laughs> yeah. I, so I guess in closing, uh, do you think uh, more people from the West and from Europe should should travel to Ukraine? Uh, what would you what would you recommend on that front? I would like to highly recommend it. But um, you have to keep in mind that very few people speak English there, which makes it a yes. bit of a, I think, a bit of a difficult place to travel to if you don't, um, if you don't speak some Russian at least. Um, but I mean, I definitely recommend the country. I think it's it's very nice. But um, it's one of those places where I think if you're visiting as a foreigner who doesn't speak the language, it's easy to get trapped into this kind of, I mean. Not trap, but you know, you're gonna go and have a very great time in all these nice bars and nice restaurants that most Ukrainians could never afford to go to. But you know, if you want to go a little bit off the beaten track, I would recommend it and try to look for some more um, interesting things other than that. Especially, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit biased in Odessa because Odessa is uh, well, very well known for its nightlife, and you'll get so many people going from you know from Turkey, from Russia, from all sorts of places specifically to mm -hmm. kind of just have a good time there. Um, but, you know, Ukraine is a huge country. There's so many interesting places. Yeah, I, I can't recommend enough just traveling to, I would say, just go to different cities and kind of see the contrast. It's it's very interesting. I mean, even I only got a small taste of it. But um, yeah, it is a kind of en endlessly fascinating place and Im impressively enormous country as well. Well, Luca, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. I think we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Palladium podcast. My name's Matt Ellison. To learn more about Palladium magazine and to become a member or to subscribe, visit us at palladiummag.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.